Today I'm speaking with Virginia Tapscott. Virginia is a freelance journalist and a mother of four who lives in rural New South Wales. I came across her through her regular contributions to The Australian, where her critiques of mainstream feminism and her writing on motherhood piqued my interest. In particular, I was interested in how becoming a mother changed her opinion on feminism. In a recent column, she writes, it was a great relief to realize I was, in fact, still a feminist of sorts, a care feminist. So Virginia, what is care feminism? So care feminism is a branch of feminism that really seeks to value and support the care work contribution, whether that be paid or unpaid, as opposed to a lot of the dominant feminist rhetoric really just aims to enable people to avoid doing the care work because there are still oppressive factors that come um, for people who engage in a lot of that unpaid and paid care work. And there's a lot of there's a lot to be said for you know facilitating women to do less of that unpaid and paid care work. But to a point, that element of that contribution will always be necessary, and it may always fall heavily on women due to um, pregnancy, childbirth, and breastfeeding. So I feel like we're at the stage now in women's liberation where we really need a good dose of care feminism to come into the conversation to say, look, we need this contribution. It's so valuable and we need to to support it instead of just facilitating people to avoid that work. Did you come up with the the word care feminism yourself or did you no, a friend actually sent me an article when I first started writing these things about motherhood. So, I mean, I feel like I was pretty across like feminism prior to becoming a mother. And the fact that I'd never heard this concept of valuing the care contribution is shocking in a way that someone else had to say, um, I think this is what you're talking about, but you're not really calling it care feminism mm. yet. So now I do use the term care feminism because I want that to become mainstream. Mm. So you say that it was a relief to realise that you were still a feminist. I experienced the same relief. How would you describe your understanding of feminism before you came across care feminism? Well, I have a really good analogy um, <laughs> of what how I was relieved was because we're so immersed in this um, career feminism girl boss, which has its great points. That, that is really empowering in some ways growing up. And I just remember the before and after of um, Destiny's Child, Independent Woman, all the honeys making money. And so <laughs> pre-kids, I'd be like, yeah, I'm the honey making money. Go me. But then once I became a mum and I realised that I really wanted to do this, you know, this care contribution and like care for my kids and be with them a lot more than sort of what I guess was the cultural norm. And then all of a sudden, like that song comes on the radio and I'm no longer the honey making money. And we sort of valorised and glorified being able to make your own income. But once you interrogate that idea in the framework of, well, actually care work's a really kick-ass, difficult, rewarding and super important contribution, it starts to really fall down. And I guess my relief was understanding that 
there was a great deal of value in what I was doing, even if mm-hmm. I hadn't sort of seen it mm. early on. So how did you come to realise the value of the work you were doing as a mother? Was it an internal thing or was it the external validation? Well, it was internal to begin with, I guess, if you mean like, I guess instinctively you really feel like this is important. I really feel like I want to do this. And I actually ended up having to go into the academic and research literature. I was just thinking, why am I being influenced to not do this? Is there no scientific basis for the value of this connection that I have with my children? And is there no value in this? It's not so much quality time because time can't always be quality, but it's quantity time and it's your omnipresence, I guess. And I I, I wanted to know if there was value in that presence. I mean, they talk Mm. about mothers, stay-at-home mothers in the 70s having less one-on-one interaction time with their children than working mothers today. And I think, you know, maybe that's right, but is there not value in the presence of that person that you go to when you're upset or when you need help or knowing that they're there, even if you don't Mm -hmm. necessarily need them all the time or are Mm -hmm. in a face-to-face interaction Mm -hmm. with them? So when did you start paid work? I remember you writing about how we should change the vocabulary that we use, that all work that mothers do is work. So when did you start back at paid work? When I was fell pregnant, I had this idea that I would do freelance work mm-hmm. when I had my newborn just there sitting in the cradle not doing anything. So I thought I'd have all this spare time and that I could just, you know, write a book or something. But, um, I mean, that freelance paid work, I think I got a few articles in while I was pregnant, but on that mat leave just after I'd finished up at my, you know, full-time job. And I sort of started to really focus back on my trying to freelance um, when Oscar turned one. And I remember thinking, well, one, like they're old enough, you know, look at him, he's walking around, he's old enough to go to daycare that's what all my peers did that's what I felt was the normal thing to do and you know I overwhelmingly felt that I should be contributing because you get that sense if you don't see your care contribution as a real contribution then you feel like well I'm not doing enough and this is I think what why mothers like can be in a caregiving role for like years on end and feel like they haven't achieved, but well, like contributed. Yeah, I really feel like it's our value systems are kind of set up to make us feel this immense discomfort. But um, I daycare just never sat well with me. Um, I was confused. I guess I had like a lot of internal, you know, telling myself that he was fine, that this was fine, that it was working and then, we'd be sick all the time and your quality of life is affected mm. that way. And then one time we were going out to lunch and trying to have a nice lunch out and he's got gastro and just spews on the floor in the mm. restaurant and you go home. And mm. it was just these things kept happening where I was like, is this what everybody does? Like this seems like a really second rate solution here. Mm. Um, <laughs> is this what everyone, is it, is it like this for everyone anyway? Mm. Yeah, just speaking about daycare, um, in a recent 
column you you write about how these values, I mean, they're structural in the sense that the government um, introduces these policies to try to get women back into work, which sounds amazing on the face of it. But when you unpick them a bit and you look at the science, you wrote that uh, it's not daycare isn't necessarily a better option for kids, for development. Science shows that. So it's funny that we do value it like that. There's a huge disconnect, in my view, between policy, cultural attitudes and the science and the literature on this. I mean, it's awkward. I can't change the literature. The the government literature reviews can't change the literature. We know that for under threes, the optimal model of care is with your primary caregivers who are going to have a lifelong investment with you, not necessarily your mother, anyone like dad, um, you've got relatives, you know, that that's just what the research says. I mean, formal group care has a huge role to play in society because of the breakdown of community and people don't necessarily have access to family, friends who you know, can just look after their kids or want to. And so we need to, those policies that like facilitate access to early education services are essential, but they need to be mm-hmm. counterbalanced with policies that say, hey, look, well, if people have access, they want to provide that care contribution or they have access to family members and they need to be supported in sort of both options. So do you think that a lot of mothers actually do want to be providing more of this care work but can't because of the social norms do you think that most mothers really do want to spend more time at at home with their kids well from what i hear i mean most people say well yeah but we need money but i feel like that really strengthens the argument for more support for unpaid care work because are we really comfortable with putting people in a position where they have to choose between not having food to eat and caring for their children. I mean, I feel like having that choice to provide that care is a basic human right and that mm. a child having the opportunity under three years to have access to a parental caregiver throughout the day, I feel like that is just a basic right that needs to be facilitated. I feel like a lot of parents in general, maybe not limited to women, like I feel like a lot of dads would say, well, yeah, if that was a legitimate choice and I was supported in that and valued for that, I would. Mm-hmm. Would this be remuneration for work done in the home, like literally paying for that work to be done? Yeah, and I'm not talking about hourly rates here. I'm talking about Mm -hmm. your family support payments set up in a way that if you can prove that you're a single-income family, that there are like tax concessions or, yeah, a payment that you're eligible for. It wouldn't be reflective of the exact monetary value that um, they sometimes calculate to show the value of that work. No, I'm not talking about that. But I'm just talking about the ways that the government can say, look, dual income families, good, you are making a great contribution to our economy and we love you and thank you. And then also where the family structure is set up that one labour equivalent is in paid work and one labour equivalent is in unpaid work that underpins the whole economy. We say to those families, yes, great contribution, thank you, and this is how we support you. If you want to provide the legitimate choice in how people raise their families, there has to be equal policy and tax treatment. Have you heard that some women are opting out of 
motherhood and making it quite a political statement. Have you come across any women like this? Is it called the couples that are on dual income with no kids? Isn't there like an acronym getting around? It's similar, but I think a lot of these women are single. Maybe some are in relationships, but from what I've seen, there is a bit of a trend or a subculture Mm. of um, sort of wrapped up in this anti-natalism. If you've heard about that, there are people who are against having children because of either environmental reasons or... Um, population reasons they think we're overpopulated I mean on the one hand it's kind of poorly informed because dropping birth rates are actually a really big problem for countries economies and we've seen that in Europe and Japan and China anyway we've seen it all over the world that richer countries are now having issues with their falling birth rates and will have to, they'll be forced to look at ways to say, okay, well, how can we better support people, families because we need people to keep having babies. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it's a really interesting form of protest because we are making reproductive contributions. We're putting that cost on the individual for what is a public benefit. When we talk about conservation efforts and there's this collective benefit of having increased biodiversity and protecting our, like, water and air resources, right? Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. the cost of protecting that often falls on individual, say, landholders, say, farmers. Mm -hmm. So it's Mm -hmm. their individual burden. And what we see even in um, nations today that people can't afford that cost. So when they continually clear rainforests in the Amazon, it's because individuals can't afford to protect that. And so in Australia, government and private market, which are in the form of carbon credits and like conservation of the bush payments to the individual landholders, that's how we conserve that resource that has great collective benefit. So when we look at care contributions are becoming increasingly scarce and I think we can all admit that that is having an effect on our overall well-being and it's having an effect on our economies whether we like it or not because people who are depressed and anxious or sad or just don't feel like they've got time they're not as productive and so if we feel like we need we want to conserve an element of this care contribution that's unpaid we need to have serious discussions about how we can facilitate that with private business and public policy to pay for that because it is a collective benefit and it collectively we will have to pay for that contribution Mm -hmm. this is a bit of a controversial question i suppose do you think you can fully self-actualize without having children Well, the self-actualization will be different. You still self-actualize, but it's probably not the self-actualization that would have happened without children. And I'm not sure that you can really say one is better than the other. Like, I think women should be free to choose to not have children because, you know, if you have kids to tick a box, but you don't want that personal Mm -hmm. resource drained by children. Mm -hmm. My self-actualization has come from realizing like I had to completely self-actualize to be able to help my children develop their sense of selves. Right. Which is getting really philosophical, spiritual stuff. <laughs> but it having children forced me 
to go places that I may never have gone because I had to sort stuff out to be mm. there for them. Mm. Uh, on that topic, um, you know, we were supposed to record last week and um, we, we had some technical issues and we didn't end up recording. And actually it was a silver lining because I got to listen to the whole eight episodes of, of your podcast, uh, My Sister's Secrets. And it was an incredible podcast. I've already sent it to many of my friends. It really touched me. Um, and it for people who, who haven't listened, a lot of our listeners are in the US. Virginia's podcast documents the the life of her her late sister, Alex, and the abuse that she she suffered um, on on a number of occasions from two older male family members. Um, and also um, the abuse that you suffered, Virginia. Um, mm. And it got me thinking, um, you know, you've got four kids. A lot of people who have gone through what you've gone through as a child would perhaps not want to bring a child into the world. It would skew their opinion of men. Yeah, I'm really interested in that in how you you came to reckon with mm. these these ideas well growing up for me um i think alex always had a complicated sort of yeah relationship with men generally mm -hmm. but i was um my abuse was less chronic less mm -hmm. severe um and mine lay dormant sort of my trauma. So while I was growing and developing perceptions of men and boys and I feel like I had really positive experiences um, and I di actually didn't have trust issues um, because whilst I'd had this sort of gross betrayal of trust, I had like really very awesome trust systems with um, other, you know, caregivers that were men and, and mm -hmm. my mom and this is why uh, when children experience child sexual abuse and then they have other factors involved so like parents having drug difficulties or alcohol struggles um, coming from lower socioeconomic you know having compounding factors can actually com compound the trauma um, repeated different um, perpetrators Whereas mine was sort of one perpetrator and it was a few isolated cases. That A lot of that lay dormant until I had my son and he got to the age that I was when I was sexually abused. And a lot of um, child sex abuse victims talk about that moment where they're like, oh, hang on a minute. You get um, a real live example of mm. your mental capacity at that age mm. and you realise because I, I feel like for a long time I thought, you know, why didn't I just get off his lap? Like what was wrong mm. with me? Mm. And my adult brain probably obviously would be like put up a bit of, you know, a fight. But mm -hmm. as a child you don't know what's going on. You don't know what mm. sexual acts are and you're with an adult and you just think you should do what they're doing. Um, <clears throat> so that was a real moment where I had to go through, I'll do a lot of work to address, I guess, what had happened and 
address that there had been a big breach of trust and that what were other people doing at that time? Why, you know, why did we still see him, I guess, after family members knew that what had happened? So we did, I did heaps of work there and that has, Mm -hmm. I think if I didn't do that work, I would have been completely avoidant of anything to do with like genitals, with, you know, the kids growing up and being like, what's this, what's that? I would have been completely avoidant about issues of sex and explaining to them mm-hmm. what, which I only, my son's nearly eight. So I've only just had that conversation with mm-hmm. him and it took a lot. Like I mm-hmm. had to really just stop being a wimp. Mm. <laughs> it was really hard for me. But yeah, I know that you know, there's so much out there now, like kids are exposed to everything so much earlier and I just wanted him to hear it from me and have that reassurance that I am someone you can talk about that with because I think my my parents' generation was quite avoidant of those topics. Yeah, I can't remember having a conversation with my parents about it. I know I was very curious and I probably asked a lot of questions but they never sat me down and had this birds and the bees talk but obviously I went to, you know, sex education classes at school. Yeah, and I've been really strong on like you know you're the boss of your own body like if anybody like all the kids are full worded up with that at the end of the day you still have to trust people you can't live life not letting them be near people but Mm. I feel like I can sleep at night because I feel like we're in a position where they would tell me and they would if something was happening in the moment I think they're worded up enough that they'd be like well actually I don't want to do that Mm. Yeah, so what are your what are your thoughts on the conversation around consent at the moment? Um, obviously, like educating kids who are prepubescent, I think that's quite a, a whole different conversation, like, um, you know, child protection for, for kids who are under adolescence. It's quite different to talking about adolescents who are actively, like, wanting to go out there and, interact Mm. with the opposite sex but yeah what do you think about the general like climate of consent and how we're talking about it in Australia at least oh that's a hard one Mm. I I don't know if I've done enough reading on where it's currently at but well affirmative consent is being like enthusiastic yeses I think uh, yeah I'm not sure if it's law um but it's at least being encouraged that there has to be an enthusiastic yes or consent. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like I, I, I definitely was always, if I wasn't saying enthusiastically yes on the mm-hmm. in, coming out of my mouth, mm-hmm. in every sexual encounter I've had, I've always on the inside been an enthusiastic yes. Mm-hmm. So I don't have that example of where you don't say no, you don't say yes, you're not sure about it and you possibly don't want to, then it's too late. I don't know. Like that Mm -hmm. is for me where it gets really hard and Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like I would just, I guess I'm I'm getting around that with my own kids by saying, well, especially as the girls get over, like do not Mm -hmm. go along with something. Like if you you are not an enthusiastic yes on the inside Mm -hmm. or the outside, Mm -hmm. don't. But mm-hmm. it's I, I understand like there's a freeze response even in adults and you know maybe more guys should just be like do you want to do this or like it doesn't have to be like do you want to have sex it's like well do you want me to do something else like what should mm-hmm. we do mm-hmm. that could be any 
I don't know, an informal way of like, should we switch up the floor, floor play? Like mm-hmm. it's just, it's so hard. And I mm-hmm. things, I guess I've been lucky to not be in situations where as an adult or, you know, as a teenager where it, the, the line was blurred, but I know mm-hmm. so many people who have, and I just mm-hmm. wish there was a way that, and I hope it, it's possibly, yeah, a cultural thing around the way girls are raised now to be like, no, that's mm-hmm. not, I'm not into that. Let's mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. Whereas maybe the whole good girl thing was so pervasive, our generations and older mm-hmm. that it was more culturally instilled in you that you just went along with it. Yeah. I know when I was at high school, there was a lot of like, oh, you're frigid. Oh, um, yeah. There was like a dichotomy. It was like either you were frigid or you were a yeah. Um Yeah, there was. There, sort of, that's right. Yeah. It got to me as a, as a teenager and then I went through like my um, sort of quite radical feminist era and in which I thought I was quite angry about the what I saw as a power imbalance between men and women, um, including like in the bedroom, sexually. Yeah. And as I've gotten older, I feel a bit like you realizing that like, yes, I am a feminist. I, I sort of see myself as um, – well, Camille Paglia, I'm not sure if you know her. She's a, a writer. She talks about Amazonian feminism and I that really resonated with me. And it's pretty much just the idea that um, women are these really like inherently powerful creatures and part of that is related to our sex. But it, it's taken me a long time to, to get there, I suppose, well, a long time, like a decade. Yeah, that is so problematic. And I mm. that was exactly the same for me. And I don't know how I – I guess I just accepted that I was frigid and hoped that no one would pick up and just, like, fly under the radar a bit with that. It was one mm. thing that was kind of old school that mum sort of instilled in us was, like, your first time is important, you know. Like, mm. it, it does change It does change everything. Like, after that, you're sexually active then. like, mm-hmm. And I think that's why I was a late bloomer. Because I was mm. like, no, not just any old, I don't know. Like, I'm sure that's not what it's like for heaps of people. But, yeah, I was a late bloomer because I, I sort of did see that it was kind of a big deal. I mm. wanted it to be a big deal, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm. Yeah, it's all um, subjective, right? Like, I was quite the opposite. I felt um, quite early on very interested, um, not super early, at a, at a normal age, but maybe on the earlier age of normal compared to some other girls. At least it felt unusually early at the time but as I've gotten older and talked to other women I realized it was quite normal but um I felt quite ashamed about that yeah um it's it's yeah there was a level of shame tied up in it Mm -hmm. and you're kind of like Mm -hmm. what's happening but also that's interesting (laughs) yeah 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 and there's like the sex positive movement which Mm -hmm. I love elements of it's like Mm -hmm. this is a really wonderful thing that humans have and I felt like maybe growing up I could have used a little bit more sex positivity instead of erring on negativity. Mm-hmm. Do you think that growing up in the country affected your understanding of gender relations? Do you think that if you grew up in like Sydney oh. or Melbourne that it would? And do you think well, that it's affected your life trajectory in choosing to have four kids? Uh, not that you were super young when you did it, but compared to... I'm not sure. How, how old are you now, if you don't mind me asking? 32. So I had oh, my 32. first. Oh, 32. Wow. 
yeah, it is young compared to I think mm. the my city peers and cohorts in mm-hmm. the in the city. I'm not. Oscar was unplanned, so mm-hmm. I was like deep in a professional career when I was I, I fell pregnant on the pill. Um, so in some ways it was kind of unplanned, yeah. But I also had been thinking about children and babies, and I knew that that was. I was in a long-term happy relationship and I it definitely felt like something that was on the cards for me. But with gender stereotypes, I was in an unusual sort of situation growing up when you're having these really formative experiences about gender relations and gender stereotypes in that mum was widowed when she was pregnant with me. And so mum was very, she did things that were across sort of Mm. the mum and dad spectrum. So she really broke down a lot of that stereotype in some ways, which I'm sure a lot of single mums do. Like I notice it with myself, with my husband now, like I'll ask him to do things that my mum would have always done herself. So Mm. (laughs) it's a little bit like laziness probably on my part. But, yeah, I guess so easy to slip back into, well, it's kind of easier for you to do it. Where, Where I had this really strong example growing up of, well, women can just, you know, we she backed horse trailers into, mm-hmm. you know, car parks and hooked up trailers yeah. and I don't know, heaps of stuff, but and drove tractors Amazing. and I think in the in the country even women's movement into the workforce has been extremely pronounced and that was all I ever knew was that mm. all the mothers were in paid work. It, mm-hmm. it wasn't really a question about it at my school. It was just we didn't really they didn't really talk about becoming a mother or how that would work or it was all just like women um get tertiary highly educated now and get professions and careers but most of the women you grew up with were were they professionally educated like had gone to uni or what type of work were they doing well most of my aunties yeah probably no didn't go to university Mm-hmm. But in the workplace, yeah, mm-hmm. in, in varying contrib- mm-hmm. varying levels. So how do you think you got into this idea of like the girl boss mentality? Was that at uni, do you think, or was it social media or? Well, that's the dominant equality and feminism rhetoric. It's all across pop culture in mm-hmm. all sorts of songs, as I mm-hmm. mentioned. Like, yeah, you know, true. it's always about film women doing it for themselves and mm-hmm. which, as I say, has great aspects to it but doesn't necessarily translate to a positive value system around mm. valuing care contributions. It's in And it's in government policy. It mm-hmm. 100% is. Government policies um, have been a stream of nudge policies since equal pay. So... Right after equal pay was legislated, they abolished the breadwinner component of the minimum wage because, but like across the board. So that only benefited dual income families. From the get-go, the single income families were disadvantaged by this. And I don't know why people didn't see that. Like, sure, Mm -hmm. get rid of the breadwinner component for a dual income family. Mm-hmm. But whether or not the mother or the father is the breadwinner, there's still someone who's supporting um, a family and a care and a person who's doing an unpaid care contribution. So, and ever since then, it's been a string of like 
policies that equate parenting with unemployment mm. and treat it as like a problematic and we've seen like the age of the single parenting payments was wound back under the Gillard government. Things like this that are like, well, it's better for you to be in paid work as opposed to this unpaid care contribution. It's kind of like, well, you're a bit of a drain while you're, mm. while you're in this unpaid care role. Let's mm-hmm. get you back this work for welfare, which has mm. its benefit but also has its drawbacks when it's applied to people in parenting positions because that inherently devalues that contribution. Mm. If we're saying you're a problem as long as you're on this single parenting payment and we want to get you off it quicker, the parents next where they're getting new parents from I think the baby's like nine months old and and really like making their payments contingent on activities like looking for work or improving their work prospects or, you know, training, doing training things. So I just find that it's it's deeply embedded in in policy, pop culture, our public discourse. Yeah. Mm. We don't mm-hmm. know we're doing it. That's the mm-hmm. problem. Mm-hmm. Do you think that glamorizing motherhood again, like perhaps in the 1950s, at least what we see today, it was it was glamorized to some extent. Um, do you think we need to glamorize it again? Do you think that would help? Well, the the trouble is, it's still women have always worked. I mean, we've kind of made a joke of like that 1950s housewife. There were social sort of standards of like being dressed up when your husband got home and like putting Mm -hmm. lipstick on and making sure the children were well presented and stuff Mm -hmm. and things like that that are completely irrelevant today and we would never impose those sorts of Mm. standards on um, people in unpaid caregiving roles again. But I think those were aspects were more on the periphery of a core of caregiving work that was still work and still valuable and still necessary. And when we sort of said, right, well, women can only be equal if they're present in the paid workplace, we kind of had to devalue all of that work that the people had been, women that mainly had been doing for generations and say, well, that all of that time, that wasn't really necessary. And so we've had to tell ourselves that narrative. So we've had to, it's become tied up in the narrative that, the bulk of care work is not valuable and not necessary. It's not glamorizing it again. It's just, it's, it's recognizing that and and being honest that it's valuable. It's not a joke. And I'm guilty of making that joke in high school. Like our friends, my friends and I used to sort of say, "Oh well, if we fail these exams, we'll just become housewives." And it's yeah. That yeah. is how deeply ingrained that that kind of making fun of that contribution mm. is really disrespectful and but also mm. completely wrong mm. because that's a valuable contribution. But mm. it's a resurgence. It's it's a it has to start from the mother saying, This mm. is valuable, my time is valuable. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if it's in the paid workplace, it doesn't mm. matter if it's like raising my children. It's assigning mm. value to our time and our mm-hmm. bodies. And unless we start doing that. I don't think it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Last last question. I assume you haven't seen it because you're you're busy and you don't spend as much time on Twitter and social media as I do. But there has been a resurgence of um, this term. It's called trad wife. Mm. Have you heard of it? Yeah. Of, of like young people, usually like Zoomers, um, who are choosing not going to paid work 
but be stay-at-home mums. A lot of the time it's very, it's all about the aesthetic though. It's about being on TikTok and putting curlers in your hair and like wearing a pin-up style dress. And yeah, I was wondering if, if you had any experience seeing that content online. I have. I've, I've seen it. I've talked about it with a few um, colleagues. It's, uh, you know, I understand where it's coming from. It's countercultural. It's rejecting the that pe- your values tied up in your work and capitalism. I think it's kind of a rejection of that. But I feel like it's unhelpful because what I recognise is we still need career feminism. We still need women in positions of power and influence. We still need women in the public domain, which is where the equalisation of unpaid caregiving comes in for young children. We've only dealt with one side of the equation, which is trying to equalise the paid workforce participation. But that doesn't work unless you equalise the other side of the equation. And that's really been lost. So I don't know if the trad wife, I mean, I've heard people say it's like romanticising oppression. And, you know, I think there's an element of truth to that. Like we can't all just go back to women exclusively in the unpaid care work roles. Yeah, like I'm more on the we need a bit of both. While women are choosing to make that unpaid care contribution that if they deem it is necessary and worthy, then they need to be supported in that. And there's, it gets complicated with then like workplace legislation and protecting, you know, their attachment to the labour force during that time. So I'm all about sort of like in the in the middle of like you've got to, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I love career feminism, but I want people to have genuine choice and I think we need to bring the care feminism in a bit more. But, yeah, I don't I don't relate to the, the trad wife um, things. I kind of have tried to like separate myself a little from that. Okay. But you know, I I think that while they're doing their trad wife stuff, I still think that it's a valuable contribution. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. <laughs> I'm glad we could finally do it and we had a good internet connection. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming on Quill Etc. Thanks, Zoe. <laughs>